Welcome to a new space dedicated to biculturalism. A space to gather conversations, resources, and perspectives for everyone who wants to delve into the world of dual identity. I'm Natanya Hoffman, and you're listening to The Extra Half. Hello, everybody, and thanks for coming on board with this new project. For the very first episode, I thought it would be good to start both close to home and across the world with a very special guest. As some of you know, I'm a classical musician, a cellist, and our very first guest is a violinist. Benjamin Hoffman was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, and after studying in Germany and at Indiana University and at Yale University, he is now living in Los Angeles. And Benjamin's my older brother. Hi, Benjamin. Hi, Natanya. So let's get right into it. When people ask you where you're from, what's the short answer? What's the long answer? And what do you usually tell people? Well, I try to make people feel comfortable as much as I can. So when I tell them the short answer, I usually try to just kind of copy what they would say. Um, You know, usually if I've heard what they would say, then that's easier. But if they haven't said where they're from yet, then I just try to uh, take a guess. And so, you know, I guess if it feels like they're from a big city, then I might just say the name of the city where I'm from. So I would say Cincinnati. And that's if someone's American. And if um, someone's Italian and I'm in Italy, then I might say I'm from Florence. And if it feels like they're not from a big city and or they don't think that that's kind of the right way to talk about where you're from, then I would just say that I'm from Ohio, or I might say that I'm from Italy, depending on, um, oh, I guess, well, I guess if I'm in Italy, I would say I'm from Tuscany. Uh, And if I'm in the United States, I would say I'm from Ohio or the Midwest or something like that, just to make them feel comfortable. And if they ask for the long answer, or if they seem like they have time for the long answer, then basically, I just go through the story. So the story is that I'm growing up until I was 18. I grew up in um, both places. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and in Florence, Italy. And I actually, I I calculated that I think I spent about the same amount of time in both places. So about uh, nine years each, although it's divided up in kind of a weird way. So that's what I usually tell people. Well, we both definitely know the answer to these questions, but since a lot of people don't, which languages did you grow up speaking at home? And was there kind of a difference between who you, which language you spoke to which person? And in the communities where you grew up, was this seen as like a normal thing or not? I grew up speaking, we grew up speaking English and Italian at home, and it kind of depended on where we were living at the time. Our parents told us that whenever we were living in Italy, they would speak English. And whenever we were living in the United States, they would speak Italian to try to keep us trained and uh, ready to go for when we uh, needed to speak the other language. And it was not seen as normal at all. I don't think people in either of the places that we grew up had another friend that would be in the same situation that, that we were. And so we were kind of the only ones. And I also remember at one point when I was, I don't know, maybe about five or six, um, I remember trying to, every single thing that I would say, I would say it in English and in Italian, because I would never quite know like where we were and what we were doing. I remember that I had a little bit of struggle with putting that together. But you always seem like someone who took a little bit more time 
to actually piece together where you were and only speak in like the appropriate <laughs> manner. Um, but I think we kind of reacted to that a little bit differently growing up. <laughs> Maybe so. And I think you were famous for creating your own languages and sometimes <laughs> they um, borrowed from, from Italian and English. So <laughs> That's true. Well, um, I guess the elephant in the room that I think should probably be asked to anyone who, who kind of enters this kind of space. So parents, together, separate? Um, our parents got divorced and I believe you keep track much better than I do of the exact amount of years ago that was. Um, to me, it, I kind of just mark it by um, after I left home when I left for college and I was 18, just turned 18 actually. And they've been split uh, for a long time now and it's become normal. And, um, and I think we also saw it coming and, but, um, but they stayed together more or less through both of us um, uh, growing up until we went to college. So. Yeah. I think that's really important just for the framework that we did grow up with these two cultures under one roof. Although now within the last decade, we've come to kind of see those two parts of our family as really separate entities. Yeah. That's definitely how I feel too. Um, Would you consider our parents to be very different from one another in terms of cultural background and worldview? Like for me, this is a really interesting one because if I think about politics and I think about um, the kinds of values that the two sides of the family had, they're actually in a lot of ways strikingly compatible. Um, but at the same time, my parents are like radically different. So I don't know. What, what, what do you feel about that? Well, we've talked about this before. And I guess my immediate reaction is that they were pretty compatible. I think what makes them the most compatible is this attitude of uh, critical thinking towards, towards the world around us. And there's kind of a, um, a skepticism about the powers that be around us, whether it's government or um, big corporations or both and other things besides that. And But as you say, um, they come from culturally distinct perspectives, I think, very much. And um, we've just talked about, you know, what it's like uh, growing up Italian in Italy versus growing up Jewish in the United States because our dad's family is Jewish. And and I, I do think that's that's probably one of the biggest defining factors, although it's hard, to, hard for me anyway to wrap my mind around all of it. But um, if I had to point something out, uh, that's what my mind gravitates to right away, which is I think our dad's family always saw themselves and seems to continue to see ourselves as outsiders in the United States to some extent and also, uh, uh, you know, by extension sort of or, or in a related sense, we see ourselves as a minority or um, not the mainstream uh, by being Jewish. And so that kind of puts a person into the mind frame of trying to, you know, set yourself up well, sort of like uh, an immigrant mentality, which I guess it is an immigrant mentality because, um, you know, Jews are not a native people of the United States. And as immigration goes here, they're, they're not one of the first people to, to show up either. So, um, but, but besides that, of course, the whole story of persecution in other countries and other parts of the world, um, you know, continues to 
be like a, a cloud, I think, over Jewish people, uh, more or less, you know, depending on your individual personality and family culture. But anyway, for us, I think there was a there was an idea of like, you know, um, trying to get money was not a bad thing, is what I'm driving at. And I think for our for our mom's family, they're um, they're more in a culture of like not fear, and so therefore an ability to look around and say, hey, this system isn't a good system. And um, we have a duty to try to make it better and change it. And I think people who feel like outsiders and people who feel like, you know, they like the system is going to squash them potentially, they they're just fighting to survive. But people who are in the mainstream, um, they tend to not be so worried that the system will squash them, at least not right away anyway. And then Therefore, they're able to think about what their role is maybe in, in making the system better. And I think for that reason, you know, the role of money has been really different for the two sides of our family and the attitude towards making money and accumulating wealth and things like that. Right. So you're even actually talking about attitudes towards capitalism in general. Yeah, it's kind of in a way, it's kind of the same thing, at least for me. I've been thinking a lot about our world right now and, and where we are with capitalism and it it just sort of seems like you know if you deal with money uh at this point kind of globally you're participating in capitalism like global capitalism you can't you can no longer pretend that certain countries are isolated as long as they're you know buying things that come from other parts of the world then yeah we're all kind of like bound up in the system which of which money is kind of like a grease or a glue that, that holds it all together. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to talk about that a little bit later, but actually right now, just pivoting back, um, we, we we talked about a lot. Well, you talked about at the beginning this idea that we had a family that was different from the families that were around us. Um, but then we also talked about this concept of our parents having certain kinds of ideological similarities. Um, would you perceive the kind of differences um, in our parents at home to be like in some total um, greater or comparable to the kinds of differences that you were seeing within your friends and between their parents? I think that this general compatibility that we were talking about a minute ago, it, it kind of extends to our family unit as well. I think there was a certain attitude towards life that our parents share and um, you know, I use the past tense because they're not together anymore, but um, that compatibility also has to do with communication to some extent. Of course, communication is like one of the hardest things ever between human beings, uh, as far as I am concerned, but um, it's also, you know, one of the greatest opportunities. And I think that um, some people tend to to see communication as something that can be improved and can be um can can work out and it can be a a really great tool and some people tend to think well you know there's certain things that it's better not to talk about because it's just never going to be understood between both parties communicating um so they just leave it alone and i think both our, our parents are more like uh the the kind of people who are willing to go there and they're hopeful that it's going to work out and uh, through communication, they'll understand their differences. And so I think that was a compatibility 
that they shared. And I think that that's probably one of the foundational building blocks of a good relationship um, in many ways. Of course, you could see it the other way too, but that's what I think. And so, you know, I think they were more compatible than other other family units where um, the decision was made to like not talk about difficult things or or um, conflicting ideas and, and differing viewpoints and things like that. We we always hashed them out, and I think um, that attitude brought us together more than um, than the other attitude would have. So. That's true. And and just hearing you talk, I was thinking a little bit about, I mean, we never really had a lot of kind of rituals or traditions associated with our specific family unit, which meant we didn't have like a TV show that we would watch every week or biweekly. We didn't have a restaurant that we would go to for special occasions. We didn't even have a lot of these kinds of traditions connected to Cincinnati in general. And there's perhaps something that's too bad about that. But then the flip side is that I think that we filled the holes of prescribed things with actual communication and knowledge and enrichment and making connections. I, I don't know if that's a fair assumption to make, but but I think that we really had to carve out our own path in certain ways. And that was definitely very, very enriching, um, which brings me to the next thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, advantages and disadvantages. Like, what are some of the things that were really that you perceived as big boosts that came from this bicultural upbringing? And what were some things that were a little bit more difficult for you than for the people around you? Um, yeah, well, to the first thing you said, I just wanted to say I totally agree. Tradition was not a huge part of our upbringing. And that's really interesting to me. Um, but yeah, sorry to answer your question. Um, I feel like there are definitely pros and cons and i think the one of the biggest advantages is uh with vocabulary um because we you know having having gone to school uh basically exclusively in the united states until we were 18 um i feel like our um you know the demands placed on us were to understand big words in english rather than in italian and we had a really easy time of it because all the big words in English tend to be um, from Latin and they have very small building blocks within them that make them exceedingly easy to understand for someone who has a Romance language um, that they can also speak. So that was a really big advantage that we got. I would say a disadvantage, um, well, and that really ties into that first comment I made about tradition. I think the disadvantage primarily um, for me is just that um, the tradition aspect and the cultural signpost type of thing that wasn't really happening. And so I found myself, you know, going on play dates with friends and they would bring up a movie or they would bring up a, a band, definitely with the bands. It was like, like absolutely nothing. It was just a 0%. Um, understanding on my side and but even the movies like you know there there would be like one out of every 20 movies that our parents also had introduced us to or you know god forbid our parents actually enjoyed themselves and you know granted uh, most of our friends were into very shallow things at that age i'm talking about like you know very early on and but even through high school i mean you know wasn't like particularly um 
particularly sophisticated or educational content. Uh, and I mean educational in like a cultural way. But um, yeah, so because of that, I think that uh, I really quickly, I started to feel like that was a danger zone. And it was scary for me because whenever, you know, little kids are talking about something famous that everybody knows, they really do expect you to know it too. And if you don't know it, then there's always that, like, are you serious? Like, and then you feel terrible. And, you know, now people still do that as adults. Like they'll, they'll have that moment where they're about to say like, you, you've never seen, you know, but then they check themselves because they realize like, that's a silly thing to say, but kids do not realize that. And they, and, and I think on the receiving end, um, we've probably all felt it. It just really, it feels no good at all. So, um, I, I would have wished for a little bit more to hold on to, uh, but I guess, you know, it's hard to say if, um, if I really, would have wanted things to be any different um, now in retrospect, because obviously I didn't waste my time watching things that, that weren't particularly um, important, like little kid movies. Although, you know, it even extended to things like The Wizard of Oz. Like I straight up never saw The Wizard of Oz uh, for a long, long time and and a lot of other things. Um, so, so yeah, I would say that's that's a disadvantage that isn't, isn't um, necessarily going to happen but it happened to us i mean uh, i think i could see some other parents definitely throwing their kids into all of the pop culture stuff in both cultures um it's just a little bit more to go through but um, we didn't really get either one so yeah i mean the while you were talking i was trying to for the longest time to figure out i had this early memory flashing back of being at a play date when i was maybe four or five um and and i think i figured out i think it was called mud pie and it, I don't really know what it is, but it's this sweet thing that has some sort of like chocolate thing within like gummy worms and like all these different things. And I remember thinking it was like the most exotic thing because like I'd never, I don't know. Do you know what mud pie is? Yeah, I think, you know, um, <laughs> any Midwesterner listening will probably know what it is. But um, yeah, I, I couldn't describe to you the ingredients, but that was something I I never felt bad about not knowing. But, you know, it's just it's um it's random whatever comes up at a party like with kids exactly yeah you just realize that there is this more global culture that people are, are tapping into that's just different and and another thing that i was thinking is that um i'm sure this is going to come up a lot i mean especially if, if we're talking to people who are of different cultures and anyone really i mean childhood and fitting in is so different um i think childhood and through to high school i remember recently someone was talking about popularity and i was thinking like i kind of forgot what popularity is and i'm so glad i did because it's such a tight-knit group of people and and i guess um it's really different for young people now um because of covid and missing half a year of school but for most of us we go through 12 uninterrupted years of really having to find our place quite concretely within a society and hierarchy like this micro society that's made up of i don't know i mean for me it was never over a hundred people. And I think that we have kind of this pro and con, this kind of fluctuating tool in our toolkit that as young people, we don't even really understand or grasp how to use. But on the one hand, it's this idea of not quite fitting in and being an easy target because we just don't have a lot of that kind of currency or like 
cache of, of popular culture that teenagers are, are working from. But on the other hand, I mean, the flip side of that is that it's this huge pro because from a really early age, we can find a way to put things in perspective. Um, and we see that everything is relative and that we've been part of communities who literally don't know each other's existence. And I think as a young person, that's a pretty unique thing thing to have lived in two different communities who really don't know anything about each other. Yeah, um, that brings to mind another another advantage that I didn't mention, which is huge. Um, I learned about the grass is greener uh, adage um, like earlier than I think uh, is normal. So, you know, I think that's really important, like to understand the value of, of what you have and um, the way I learned it is because every every time that we would be in the United States, people would think it was awesome that I got to go to Italy. And then when I was in Italy, they would think that it was awesome that I got to go to the United States. And, um, and uh, you know, after that happened a few times, I just kind of realized like, oh, people just, um, they think that somewhere else that sounds cool is going to be better than where they are. And they wish to be there instead. And then pretty soon, um, you realize that if both people are wishing to be, uh, you know, take each other's place, then what will happen if they eventually get there? Well, they'll just feel the opposite way and it's just going to be a cycle. So, and I even felt it within myself. I even felt like, you know, oh, I, I wish I were here now. And then I would go and be like, oh, well, I wish I were back there now. And then, so eventually you just realize, oh, I, you know, maybe I should just enjoy what I have here. And then when change, uh, comes, which it always did, then I'll enjoy what I have um, after that change. And, you know, those moves happened to us. We never decided when we were going to um, go to the other place. And so, yeah, so, you know, we were just accepting change and we were learning that the grass isn't greener on the other side necessarily. Hmm. So, And do you find that when you are in that respective other place, um, and when you're speaking a different language, do you feel your own personality somehow shifting? Yeah, I always, well, not always, but at a certain point, I started noticing that I was a different person. You know, there was like a different, my, my voice uh, was at a different pitch when I was speaking a different language. And so it was pretty unique to to each individual. I don't want to really venture to say that there are any um patterns because i i don't i don't study this um ever but for me like in english my voice tends to be a little bit lower and i feel more at ease because um i know that i'll be able to say uh you know to the best of my ability exactly what i want to say and i think in italian my voice is a little bit higher maybe because of like a slight tension or like concern that i i might like not say exactly what I mean or not have the word choice that I'm used to in English. And, and, um, but it doesn't necessarily go higher and higher with, you know, the less I know a language. Like I think in, um, well, like when I speak German, I don't, I don't think my voice is higher than when I speak Italian. So it's just kind of depending on, on the feeling that I get. And, and that's the thing. I always get a feeling when I'm, speaking a certain language it's like the world um takes on a different hue and and for me i think um i've been trying to 
to let that go and just be myself no matter what in each language and and actually i think um you can do that with willpower like i've been getting closer and closer to that so it's my experience yeah well i would love to speak to a speech therapist and or a linguist about this for sure but i find exactly the same thing and also with my boyfriend because we all have different um experiences in different places and we hear each other so like when i'm in lithuania and i'm speaking lithuanian especially at the beginning my voice would just like jump two octaves and and for me it's there's like a real correlation i don't know if it's also correlated to how comfortable i'm feeling in an like within a language although i would guess that it's also correlated but for sure if i'm in a situation in which i'm feeling less comfortable my voice goes up and um yeah you could even almost see it as boredom like if you're talking to your hmm. family and you already feel like you know what they're going to say or how they're going to react and so your voice just kind of like in a monotone but um but that's probably not even half the story i think for me it has more to do with comfort but yeah and do you feel like when you're learning a different language, I mean, I know you speak quite a few, let's see, I mean, we, we both grew up with English and Italian, and then you've learned French, especially in, in high school, and then when you were in university, you were also learning Russian, and then you did the whole cycle of Hebrew at Yale, correct? Yeah, I think I started Hebrew at Indiana, and then I finished it at Yale. Okay. Um, and... To what extent do you feel like learning new languages really puts you right in the middle of different cultures? And I'm actually especially curious about Hebrew because Hebrew has such uh, a unique and, and different history than most other languages. Um, so how does how does that feel? And to what extent do you feel like you understand a culture from the lens of the way its language is built? Um, I I think I went through a process with that. I tend to suspend my judgment these days about things along those lines. Um, I don't want to feel like I understand the culture um, because I have learned to speak its language because I've gotten kind of misled along that path in the past. I think there, there are some, some like super common pitfalls. Um, for instance, um, I don't see Italian as being a particularly sexy language or romantic language, but a lot of people do and all you have to do is speak it in front of them and they think that it's really attractive just the way that it sounds and the same goes for French but um you know I mean I I could I could like go out on a limb and 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 try to say what I think those cultures have in terms of attractiveness and how it correlates to their language but it's it's pretty complex I would say like for instance um I had a funny thing when I learned German um, previous to learning it. I basically have the same stereotype that a lot of Americans do, which is that it's a very harsh and um, unpleasant sounding language. Uh, but then after learning it, I think it's probably the most beautiful language that I have learned. Um, I find it like far more uh, poetic and versatile. So, um, these these kinds of things are difficult. As far as Hebrew is concerned, um, like I said, I don't. I feel like I suspend judgment, so I don't really have much to say, except a little aside, which is that I find it really interesting the kind of R that they use. Um, 
which is the German R rather than the rolled R like Italian or Arabic. Um, and from what I learned, and I'm not an expert, so um, but what I was told in class is that at a certain point, this was uh, intentionally done to separate um, the Hebrew language from from Arabic and um, to kind of like make it distinct, even though it's anything but uh, separate, you know. So um, that's that's really all I can say. I I've never been to Israel. I know you have, and um, so I think, as far as that's concerned, you probably have a lot more knowledge of the culture than I do, and maybe that that's as good of an answer as any. Well, transitioning to a conversation about career and culture, let's take a quick break and listen to an excerpt of the third movement of Beethoven's first violin sonata, performed by you and pianist Irene Kim. aspects of our profession I mean you know we've never done anything else but I feel like there is so much connection going on all the time and I think that as classical musicians I think we have a lot more access just within the profession to the kind of socioeconomic elevator if you will um, I think that just in terms of where I've performed um, and it can be, I mean, it can go in, in both directions so much. I mean, you know, you can perform in certain communities where you come home and you wonder why it happened that you have what you have and if it isn't unjust. Um, and then you can have other performances where, you know, after you finish, you go to this incredible villa and people open up a bottle of wine from you know, 70 years ago, and and you're just sitting there thinking, like, how is this also part of the world? And yet those are both absolutely standard things that are part of our profession. So I think that it's definitely interesting for us to have grown up with this idea of, of life being, following that metaphor, kind of a building with many different floors and understanding that we're we're all in this building together, but that we need to have some sort of inkling of, of what's going on on all these other floors for things to start to even make sense. Yeah, we're connectors. There's no doubt about that. We're just, yeah. um, although I think we've been connecting um, not nearly as long as we should have been, I think um, it's, it's relatively recent that we're uh, visiting all different floors like we you used to be just hired by kings and queens and now um thankfully we can share music with all sorts of people and um and and that's become normal so that's great that's true 
Do you find in your life that you are the kind of person that often ends up in situations where you're being a mediator, an ambassador, a translator? Is that something that you kind of make your way into often or not so much? Yeah, it's funny because like I accepted the first um, words that you said, but I didn't feel good about the word translator. And I had to just think about that really quick. I I think I used to feel um, good about all of those um, roles, including translator, because maybe I felt that it was possible to accurately um, translate and and things. Um, I I'm not sure that translating is actually a successful pursuit a lot of times, but I think that mediating and connecting are definitely, you know, being an ambassador are definitely um, successful, and that's because like people aren't the same they're never going to be the same and you you can't like with mere words you can't convey really complex things between two people that have um have different life experiences and so um you know i think i think translators have a really hard job and and they do it really well professional ones i mean and um but but I think it's a stretch, um, at least for me to to strive for that. And but I've always really cared about, um, yeah, about bringing people together. And I think one of the greatest truths that gets tossed around is that we are all so similar. Like I remember the first time we traveled, sort of halfway across the world, when we went to China on a family trip. Um, all of those experiences of traveling between the places that we lived and had family, but also the places that we traveled to because our parents valued traveling so much. Um, those really cemented that belief in me. And I don't think anyone could ever convince me that uh, people are fundamentally different based on their ethnicity or where they come from. And um, so as a result, given the tremendous amounts of conflicts that that we see all the time it seems like you know why wouldn't i try to help people see that and it, it usually seems to be that if they would only realize that then the conflict would um essentially melt away so uh, it seems to be like always really worthwhile to try to connect people and help them realize how um similar they are to whoever they're having a conflict with it seems to me like and again i'm not a historian either um, but of course, we all know that borders have continued to change and shift throughout history and that migration has largely shaped the world and for sure shaped the human race. Um, I think a lot of times when we talk about nationalism and when we talk about um, identity politics or at least um, the interest of countries we're, we're talking about the nations that we recognize post-World War II, um, and especially in the West. In the East, we're talking about nations that are sometimes 30 years old. And it's, it's kind of, in a way, I mean, I guess what I wanted to say was that as bicultural people, we are, well, we're a taste of what's to come. 
I think every generation there will be more people like us. But I think that's even within the pocket of history that we currently find ourselves in, because in different pockets of history, like that whole process has been happening throughout civilization and throughout humanity. Within that context, we are anomalies and um, that's going to continue to increase. So that's going to have an increasing effect on the kind of politics that are even possible, because I think you can only make a certain kind of political argument if there are enough constituents that will identify with that. And I think that we're going to see a shift toward people who are just not really sure they can fit those boxes. Last of all, um, one of the reasons why we wanted to open up the space um, was because there just are, like we were saying, so many people who are in relationships with someone whose mother tongue is different, whose country of birth is different. And I'm just wondering if as a second generation, kind of as a product of that kind of a relationship, are there any specific tips or kinds of advice or things that you would want to warn people about anything from farther down the road that you want to let people know as a scout? Yeah, I think the main thing is just, you know, uh, think about what you're getting your kid into. It's kind of like anything else. Like when you pick a name, um, make sure you don't pick a name that kids are going to uh, think is something, you know, from pop culture that they all know about that they're going to laugh at or something like that. But um, it's just all those all those things. And um, kids are really impressionable. So uh, for me, it was things about about not knowing like pop culture references so if you uh care about about your kid feeling sort of accepted and normal then make sure to surround him or her in um in that normalcy as much as possible like some kind of um effort to immerse your child in both cultures if it's going to be both or whichever one you live in if you don't care too much about maintaining both to the same degree but whatever it is like um, that could be really helpful from my experience if you care about that if you don't mind your children having a hard time with that and realizing um, later in life that it isn't a big deal and like what it all means like and and you know maybe filling their time with other things that that interest you more that's also fine and that's what we experience but um i think just overall you want your children to feel like uh or at least i would to feel that they belong and i think that's pretty important so at some point you have to make sure that they feel comfortable within a community because i don't think you want like a young person feeling disconnected and like they don't belong uh, so that's my biggest piece of advice thanks for everything it was a really great conversation thanks Natanya good luck with your podcast <laughs> thank you The Extra Half is created and produced by a small but dedicated team thank you to Gilvinos Brazauskas who's done the editing and who created performed and recorded the original music you're listening to right now thank you to Jessamine Jones the graphic designer behind our logo and all visuals associated with this podcast. If you'd like to get involved, you can just log on to anchor.fm slash the extra half 
And feel free to send us a voice message with any questions, comments, or suggestions on what we can do in the future that you might have. If you know someone who you think would be a good fit for the podcast, just let us know. Also, please rate and review this podcast on whichever platform you're using. It does make a really big difference just in terms of letting people know we're out there. And you can find us, of course, on Facebook and Instagram with our very new and fresh pages. Next time, we'll be speaking with Hivote Tadesse, who is a wonderful musician and human being. Hivote is a violist whose mother is Croatian and whose father is Ethiopian. I'm Natanya Hoffman. You've been listening to The Extra Half. Take care. Until next time.